Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm joined again by Emmanuel Datt of Datt Capital. In this episode, we talk about portfolio construction and the benefits of unlisted debt and small cap equities, how to assess management teams, and Emmanuel makes the case for a mining development company called Adriatic Metals. For a full list of episodes and show notes, head to www.ras.com.au. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Emmanuel Datt from Datt Capital. Manuel, welcome back to round three of the podcast, mate. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us, Owen. Um, for those who don't know, we've had a few discussions over the last few months. We talked about the depths of coronavirus and, and what the what was happening to the market. Mm-hmm. And then we spoke about um, some opportunities, some short-term opportunities, and then some longer-term opportunities in the last podcast. We spoke about self-wealth and a smaller business. Mm-hmm. And now you're back again for round three, yeah. and we have uh, a a few more interesting angles to pursue and a company that you've written extensively about. Mm -hmm. So hopefully um, there's plenty that people can take away. One of the things that is probably worth reflecting on right now is just how you and the fund has fared over the last year because um, taking, a, I guess, a multi-asset approach to things is quite unique for the show. Mm -hmm. And many of our listeners probably think intuitively that it makes sense to have equity exposure or share market exposure to mix that with some debt or some property mm-hmm. and kind of bring that all together yeah. um, in a way that minimizes risk. So we look at you know volatility or however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. And we also have the upside capture there as well. So one of the things I know you're keen to talk about is you know how you've fared over the recent recent months and, and, and since inception really. Um, and I guess explore that through the prism of Uh, asset allocation and how you think about blending all the asset classes together. So Mm -hmm. why don't I just throw it over to you. We've got some numbers in front of us here that, you know, it looks pretty good. Um, Most recent fund report says 41% in commercial real estate debt, um, 52% in equities and the remainder in cash. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw it over to you, reflect on, I guess, markets and where we are and how your asset allocation has helped you in that time. Mm -hmm. Sure, Owen. Um, Well, uh, a pleasing element um, that's sort of, uh, I guess, been the outcome of, our, of this particular strategy is that um, over a 12-month uh, period, over the last 12 months, we've achieved a rolling return of 14.75% mm-hmm. and uh, relative to the ASX 200, which um, returned negative 7%, mm-hmm. uh, we've outperformed by almost 22% with much less equity market risk. Mm. And uh, so just in May itself, uh, we uh, clipped a return, a positive return of 9.2% odd. Mm. And um, it's very pleasing. Mm. Uh, it just validates our strategy. And um, it really demonstrates the higher quality of return, uh, especially given the 
the um, lesser equity risk mm. and you know a, quite a high average cash allocation over that 12 months as well. Mm. When you look at the portfolio over the last few months, how do you think about the the allocation to commercial real estate debt? Uh, I think some of our listeners would be interested to know how that's priced and how, because I, I imagine that, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's priced and valued a bit differently. Obviously, it's not mark to market every single day. You don't open mm-hmm. your brokerage account and see it. Yeah. So how is that priced and how does that feed through into returns? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, a commercial real uh, estate debt loan is effectively uh, a senior loan secured mm. against a real property, in yeah. this case, real estate. And uh, effectively, that is um, yeah, even, even better than in our, in our um, opinion, it's even better than, say, a senior uh, note issued by a corporation, for mm. example, because it's generally secured against a single asset itself that you can repossess if necessary and um, yeah, actually sell. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, saying that, you know, not all um, debt deals are made the same, so it does take a fair bit of skill to know what's a good deal and what's a bad deal. Mm. And I think that's where our edge has been demonstrated over over this time. Mm. I imagine, so when you look at some of these deals, because you're pr- primarily operating in Melbourne and Sydney, mm-hmm. and you're looking at these opportunities, like I'm, my understanding of the industry is quite shallow compared to yours, mm-hmm. but I imagine that you know it's priced similar to a bond in, so far as it's kind of like an IRR. So you mm-hmm. have that initial rate, uh, yeah, internal rate of return, sorry, yeah. um, and then you you come up with a value, a carrying value for that throughout the period. Is mm-hmm. that kind of how you think about it? Uh, well, basically, um, the way it's priced is basically uh, just the principal. Mm-hmm. Um, say, for example, if you have a million dollars or you extend a loan of a million dollars, then uh, it typically stays that way. Right. Uh, that's purely because uh, the facilities that we sort of invest in a generally very short duration, you know, right. 12 to 18 months would be the maximum uh, uh, tenure, I yeah, guess, right. on these. So um, it's not necessary to really reprice given that short duration. Mm. Yeah, we spoke about, um, I think it was 360 Capital on a podcast a little mm-hmm. while back yeah. and the differences there um, and how you could apply that, I guess, that filter from private Mm-hmm. markets to public markets mm-hmm. i thought that was a really interesting um, way to bring them two together so if people aren't familiar that's probably the episode to go back and listen to mm-hmm. um how about when you think of allocation from a higher level mm-hmm. and you think um you know you're looking at 12 months or you're looking even today you're, you're looking at what's around the corner and you're thinking how do you how do i position myself to capture upside inequities and I guess, minimize that volatility for our investors. How do you think about that now? And um, I understand, you know, this barbell approach. So maybe you can explain that and how you think about your allocation versus conventional um, asset allocation. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, a conventional strategy um, uh, for investors is to invest um, prim- like almost purely in equities yeah. <laughs> as far as I've seen. Yeah. Um, uh, so I guess uh, most um, you know, participate in or invest in equity funds or buy direct equities, mm-hmm. and they, uh, you know, for more sophisticated investors, they might try and mitigate uh, that equity risk um, by taking positions in uh, alternative uh, vehicles like long short equity yep. funds, for example. Um, but I think that you know 
conceptually, um, you're still taking upon equity market risk, even in the case of investing in a long short fund. Um, and that's been proven over the last three months, which where we've seen the market experience severe uh, volatility. Mm. Um, you know, from our own analysis, the majority of long short funds actually underperformed the broader market over these three months. And that's for a variety of, re- of reasons. Um, uh, most prominent in my mind is that um, the manager's investment bias themselves um, yeah, comes into the equation. Right. So if you're a bear, you probably made really good money um, mm. you know, during March, maybe half of April. But then um, if you've maintained that bearish uh, poise um, throughout the market recovery, you basically lost mm. all that you earned. <laughs> and yeah. we've seen that in many cases, basically. So, um, yeah, I, I think that um, uh, yeah, it makes sense to, to um, invest across asset classes uh, uh, just to mitigate that uh, bias mm. or, um, from the manager perspective itself. And um, uh, so in, in the sense of barbell investing, one quote that has always stuck with me throughout you know, from the very big start of my investing career or when I first started to educate myself mm-hmm. seriously uh, was a quote by um, a famous uh, money manager called Stanley Druckenmiller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, his quote was, the way to build long-term returns is through the preservation of capital and home runs. Mm-hmm. And that's effectively what a barbell approach is. You have an allocation towards defensive um, income-generating assets. In our case, we use uh, the real estate debt component. Is that that part of it? And then you have uh, the home run element, which is the equity Mm. allocation. Mm. And... um, so, uh, and we also also include the cash element, sure. you know, to, to preserve our optionality mm. and uh, opportunisticness. To- yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, barbell approach. I think the way I frame it is kind of this core and satellite or core and tactical yeah. approach, which is very much the same. It's yeah. such that your high conviction um, is limited to those only those positions that you do have that high conviction in and you mm. can take concentrated bets yeah um, so i know that you've we've talked about some opportunities equity opportunities smaller companies there's faster growing companies mm-hmm. um, and we'll come to i guess how you th- we've well, we've spoken a bit about that but we'll come to mm-hmm. the way you can think about that conceptually from um, risk versus return and, and the trade-off there yeah. um, i think it's a really interesting approach and you don't see much of it insofar as the way that you've constructed the portfolio because I think a lot of people that set out on this they uh, they speak with consultants Mm -hmm. and then they speak with research houses and all the different types of um, experts that oversee a lot of the funds management Mm -hmm. industry and they're told this is what you've got to do to get into this part of an advisor's portfolio and this is what you have to do here whereas you've kind of taken we spoke a bit off air about this you've kind of taken a different approach which is you know, can I afford to do this? And this is how I want to invest. Yeah. Um, so I should invest the way that I want to in- invest and I th- the way I think works. Mm. And I think that you've been able to do that because of your backstory, which we've covered in a previous show, uh, which is really interesting. So um, I think that provides a good segue into um, talking about asymmetric returns on the equity side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, you've, you've written at length about the, the debt side, so we can, I think we can put that to one side and focus on equities. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll start from the higher level and talk about this concept of asymmetric returns. I mm-hmm. imagine many of our listeners 
understand the concept. Yeah. Some would understand the theory insofar as the, the mathematics behind it. But how do you think about asymmetric returns and how do you describe it to investors? Yeah, sure, Owen. Um, well, uh, an asymmetric return is effectively when the upside is uh, more than the downside yep. or multiples usually of the mm-hmm. downside. And, uh, you know, effective, the way we think of it is that, uh, the payoff can be modeled like an option, like buying a call option, mm-hmm. where you have a fixed, uh, limited, uh, outlay, but, uh, your return at maturity can, you know, theoretically be unlimited, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how far it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way we think of it is that, um, Markets are reasonably efficient at pricing in current information, but are quite inefficient in pricing in future events or catalysts. That's the way we think of it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where we feel the opportunity lies for, you know, a canny investor. Uh, One example that uh, I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Afterpay. So with Afterpay... um, that's driven, I guess, by, uh, we felt it was driven by uh, human psychology in, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, and one thing we've noticed is, uh, is um, basically the transfer of um, behaviors between early adopters, uh, uh, millennials, or yeah. you know, in yeah. previous years, they were called other things. Yeah. Uh, so the behaviors basically adopted by uh, the younger generation, the transfer through to older generation once it's proven or the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in this case, uh, we noticed that Afterpay was obviously very popular amongst millennials. Uh, bring it, being a free service, um, you know, it was everyone loves a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> but also users have no, had no incentive to try competitors. And, uh, but it also allowed the company to uh, obtain new customers uh, very quickly and cheaply. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just um, fulfilled a very core and deep uh, human desire to, to obtain the best deal possible. Yep. And we felt that that would have value across generations. It right. wouldn't just be restricted to younger people. So you were thinking, um, you were thinking it's not just, even though the millennials are, these are the early adopters, yeah. what's phase two or phase three in effect after pay yeah. i think you yes. presented this at an event that we did quite a few years yes, ago yes. and you said after pay 2.0 or 3.0 yeah. what that iteration might look like yes yes so exactly. I, I think i'm getting ahead of yeah. you but you, you, you explained it <laughs> yes yeah. yes exactly but um yeah effectively you know we recognize that okay um at um, the present point in time, which was uh, you know, very early stage, I think, uh, mm. when we first got in, uh, we've mentioned, um, I think it was about $7 yeah. or so. So, you know, in hindsight or on at present, uh, in that present circumstance, it may have looked, you know, on the face of it expensive. Mm. But when we were sort of looking you know, at a two to three year sort of future range, it actually didn't look too bad value. And yeah. I think that's been proven. I mean, given it's trading over $50 yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, makes so, sense. Yeah. So you, you mentioned at, the, at the, the, the top of this section, you said asymmetric returns is, you know, investors, in effect, the inability to price future events mm. and or, or price them effectively. Mm-hmm. So since 
you started that position we've seen after pay obviously it had a beach head always getting one in the u.s mm-hmm. and then started to really take off over there now yeah um, and other parts of the world, mm-hmm. world as well is when you think about that now we use after pay as an example not necessarily pitching for or against it but yeah. then if you're looking at it now would you be thinking not necessarily like it's not just, just the u.s it's not just europe it's mm what other verticals can they move into? Mm. Is that kind of how you think about it? You need to be more creative rather than quantitative or scientific yeah, in that well, approach. Yeah, I, I think creativity is very important in uh, an investment process. Mm-hmm. I think that um, if you're just crunching numbers, then that's a very uh, conventional method of um, uh, analysing an opportunity. Yeah. Um, I think you need to run uh, a number of scenarios through your head or... Uh, a number of different circumstances um, mm-hmm. uh, through your head and and um, I think that uh, that way you know the worst case and the best case scenarios <laughs> and one other sort of company I guess that we've talked about recently Selfworth mm. um, we saw that um, you know, during the March Selfworth sold off very heavily down to about 10 cents um, and that was um, despite such um, clear, uh, undeniable user growth that was there in black and white, disclosed yeah. in its um, uh, regulatory filings. And um, I should probably point out that since we entered self health, it's gone up more than 100%. Yeah. Um, but that shows how inefficient markets can be uh, during certain times, but also that the markets don't necessarily uh, uh, look ahead, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> despite you know, strong numbers that are in black and white. Yeah. It's one of those things that it, I guess it touches on that point of variant perception and seeing you have to see, you have to see what others don't. If you're all crunching the same numbers, you get the same outcome, mm. presumably, unless you're using different discount rates or uh, optimistic mm. uh, terminal values. But yeah, it's one of those things where, and I think this has been impressed upon me over many years of speaking mm. to really good investors, is not necessarily thinking about what's on the balance sheet or what's on the financials or what's in the annual report, but what could you see being on that annual report in four or five years, yeah. even 10 years, and mm. um, then trying to think of a way that it gets from here to there because yeah. that's how you ascribe that probability. You know, it's, yeah. it's easy to say that's possible, mm-hmm. but what's probable is a different thing altogether. Um, and one of the things that we talk about a lot in this discussion is we talk about the difference between the jockey and the horse, mm-hmm. so the company and the management teams. Yeah. And one of the things which you've mentioned to me as well, is we probably don't talk enough about how to think about managers and the way that they execute on a proposed strategy. So maybe I'll throw the reins over to you to continue that. Uh, when you when you first come across management, I guess the first question is, do you always meet with management? Uh, no, so generally we don't uh, talk to management or, or meet or engage with them before. Okay. Uh, and we why, make why an investment decision. Uh, we're trying to basically mitigate uh, our own bias. You know, mm-hmm. if um, we base, uh, we don't want to, I guess, fall into the trap of falling for you know a management team's narrative mm-hmm. uh, without having um, some you know, independent facts yep. verified. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Um, that's something that I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's generally our practice. I would say, yep. and um, you know, I think that uh, all uh, investments or direct investments into a company, you're effectively investing in the people who are running the company yep. on behalf of shareholders. Uh, so I think that you know, but saying that management teams are very 
diverse in the way they present themselves. Uh, you might have people that are very articulate and uh, on the face of it, they look very investor friendly, mm. but uh, can often be not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and conversely, you might have um, pe- um, you know, people that are uh, not very articulate and um, don't present well, but are just uh, you know, excellent operators and um, have uh, you know, the interests of all shareholders mm. um, uh, you know, at their heart. Yeah, I guess it's one of those <laughs> things where you, sometimes you can, be, you can be sold to snake oil by some managers, right? But if, they're, yeah. if they're too charismatic, it's sometimes a red flag in itself. Yeah, um, And then if they're aloof and distant, they might be better at the technical side of the business, so they are that technical founder, yeah. which in some instances is excellent because mm. you do want to know when that manager is appropriate for the for the organization that they're running and the strategy mm. so what are some of the cues i think this it can become very abstract when we talk about charisma and we talk about you know um, assertiveness or being aloof we can talk about all these fluffy terms but yeah. what are the, some of the the cues that you take from either speaking with management or just um, hearing the way that they talk on conference calls and those types of things yeah well i think you know i think there are four elements that we focus on mm-hmm. uh, and I'll go through them one by one. Sure. Um, so we basically look at their track record where they've sort of worked before, uh, what the history of those past workplaces have been and um, I know there are some, you know, um, uh, short biased managers that actually use this as, mm. uh, <laughs> use this very same process for um, you know, finding what they consider to be frauds or, you know, potential frauds Um, but you know it's just as powerful for any investor uh, that invests long only um, because uh, for a long only investor you're trying to avoid the bad ones but find the good ones and um, so I think track record is um, is uh, you know one important factor that Mm -hmm. we look for Um, and um, I I guess number two would be uh, the honesty, you know, when obstacles are encountered. Um, I think that, you know, if there is a drawback and management teams try and, um, I guess, uh, not take accountability or not be transparent about the situation, I think that's a warning sign because mm. uh, if something bad happens, you know, regardless of whose fault it was or whether there was any negligence, I think that um, yeah, it's always better to be honest and transparent oh, for sure. about yeah. the situation because if they're hiding one thing, you don't know what else they could be hiding. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's, that's a very important one. Um, the third point would be um, the focus on the business itself. And um, as we spoke about, you know, the lack of, um, you know, salesy, hyperbole (laughs) you know so I guess having some realistic expectations um yeah I guess we sort of see I mean we've noticed it more in in um you know that the more speculative industries uh like resources or IT Mm -hmm. you know or technology that you sometimes you come across these companies with a fairly conventional product with uh no real point of difference from our perspective but they'll just say that oh we've got you know, 
a $20 billion <laughs> total addressable market. And yeah. you just makes you sometimes you know, scratch your head and think, where did they get this number from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I've seen trillion written a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, but I think, you know, the, um, you know, one attribute of good management teams is they're not trying to, um, you know, shoot the lights out or take a Hail Mary shot. They're yeah. sort of focused on progressing incrementally and, um, you know, that often that you know, incremental growth can often lead to parabolic growth if they get everything right. Mm. So it's not just about shooting for, you know, that big win early yep. on. It's about grinding it out till you till you reach sort of um I guess a break even point or, you know, an inflection point is uh, is a term that's often used. And mm. then, you know, that builds a very strong base to build mm. future growth forward. Because you you you're looking for um these high conviction bets in the equity sleeve of your portfolio, but yeah. um, you probably come across quite a few of these more, I guess, mm. charismatic CEOs and these documents that you just look at and you think that's just, I don't know who that's for, but it's not for me. Yeah. Um, yeah it's interesting, interesting framework. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think the last one would be the alignment um, with, mm. the, with the other shareholders in the company. And um, if you have, a management team that has uh, a good size holding of stock that they purchase themselves. Uh, that's, you know, it's not the only indicator, but it's a good indication that, you know, they're putting their money where their mouth is. Mm. And, um, you know, that can be a very powerful uh, uh, driver for many. Um, you know, we're invested in some companies where the management teams hold 20% of the company, for yeah. example. So we know that, you know, a favorable outcome for themselves will be a favorable outcome for everyone. But then you sometimes see companies where, uh, you know, the management team owns no shares at all. Yeah. And <laughs> effectively, uh, uh, you know, their, their payoff comes from their salary being paid by the company itself, mm. which is probably not um, an ideal situation for us. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it's it's kind of like a, like you said, it's not always a red flag, uh, but it can be one where it helps you sort through the bunch of opportunities that you have in front of you. Because if these guys have such intimate knowledge of the business, why don't they own yeah. some shares, right? And so that's that's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that also on the other hand, um, yeah, from the investor side itself, um, especially if you um, are a larger investor or even you could even be um, a professional investor yourself that um, you know investors can build good reputations amongst management teams themselves mm. uh, which makes um, I guess the willingness uh, of management teams to engage with you uh, on a personal level to be a lot more powerful yeah um, and we found that you know I mean we we've um, tried to maintain good, relationships with our investing companies mm -hmm. and um, you know, for example um, uh, we had a had an investment in a particular company that uh, got taken over and uh, the takeover wasn't something that we agreed with but we kept good relations you know with the directors and, and the management team there mm. and uh, that served us well uh, for you know another investment where we were knocking on someone's door you know, offering to um, place some funds with them, and they didn't know us from a bar or so, but right. they knew um, one of the directors from 
this um, other company that we invested in. And uh, they had glowing words saying that these guys are honest and transparent yeah. <laughs> in their dealings and, um, um, you know, they're good supporters to have. And uh, so yeah, it's right. really worked in our favor. Um, having a good reputation. Yeah, that's the thing, right? For, like you said, larger investors, for us small yeah. investors, you don't really need to think about that too much because if you don't like management, you can just say what you want and move on, right? Yeah. But when you, yeah. you, you're trying to place larger sums of money and you, sometimes liquidity can become a problem or an issue, you need to think about how can you negotiate into that? How can you have that relationship with management? Yeah. Um, so you can find out what you need to find out. Um, one of the final things that we wanted to talk about, as always on this, this segment, is talking about opportunities across the portfolio. Uh, some of the things that you've come out with recently, I imagine some of our listeners will be paying very close attention. And this is a company that I know you've written about extensively, so mm-hmm. we don't need to necessarily go into the weeds too much on this. Yeah. Although I, I'll probably have a few questions as we go because it's, 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 a, it's an industry that I'm not familiar with. But yeah. it's a company called Adriatic Metals. Mm-hmm. It's listed on the ASX. Yeah. Um, it's... Um, early, would you call it early stage mining or resources? Yes. 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 Okay. That's as far as I'll, I'll hand it mm-hmm. over to you and then I'll chime in with some, some questions. Yeah, sure. So Adriatic uh, are a um, uh, metal development company mm-hmm. and they own a world-class polymetallic project in Bosnia known as the Various Project. Uh, so the deposit, uh, polymetallic effectively means yeah, uh, say, multiple metals uh, oh, right. within um, the ore body itself. Yep. So the deposit holds gold, silver, zinc, lead, copper, and an industrial um, a metal called barite. Right. Um, so the project um, is not, it's not a junior explorer, it's a mm. junior developer. So right. uh, the project is uh, at the early stage um, studies. Uh, so they've delivered a scoping study and they also have a pre-feasibility study, which effectively um, is a study that uh, it, it's basically um, step number two along the study's path. Right. And um, that will be due out in September followed by um, a definitive feasibility study in January 2021, which is basically the study which uh, allows the project to be financed and developed right. ultimately. So that kind of lays out the costs involved, this, you know, everything, yes. the opportunity, and then investors can effectively bank on that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So um, the delivery of, a, of the DFS or the uh, definitive uh, feasibility study right. uh, allows the company to go out to a project financier to say, "Hey, look, we've done these numbers. We've done, uh, you know, we've we've um, done a study with a very high uh, degree of certainty mm-hmm. in the numbers um, that are in the study. So that allows them to effectively get the project rolling in terms of development." Mm-hmm. And um, so, basically, uh, what we were really attracted to um, uh, with the caveat that we invested before uh, the preliminary study uh, or the scoping study was complete is um, just the nature of the ore body and the project itself. Right. Um, uh, I've just uh, so basically the the scoping study um, outlined uh, in net present value discounted eight percent of approximately one point three. Uh, billion Australian dollars, right? Uh, and an internal rate of return of over 100 percent over okay. a, over a mine life of eight to ten years, I believe. Sure. Um, 
So how does that, how is that calculated? So is that based on the total resource available yeah. to the company? Um, and does that include extraction and development capex and all that type of thing? Yes, yeah. all okay. in. So it was very, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very attractive and it sort of uh, confirmed the world-class nature mm. of um, the project itself. Um, a few things that, that make this so special to us, mm. um, you know, the ore body itself is you know, extraordinary high grade and um, also the polymetallic element of it, you know, having multiple metals in the same deposit uh, is very attractive because you're not exposed to just, uh, for example, the price of gold yep. to make it work. Um, you're actually able to um, extract economic uh, mm. um, returns out of all the metals that are present in it. Mm. So it provides a good um, level of downside protection. That's the way I think of yeah. it. Um, but also um, the uh, capital intensity of the, pro of the project itself, which is effectively how much um, initial capital expenditure to extract each um, dollar of revenue right. that follows on. So the capital intensity was only about half of comparable projects, but also um, the low cost nature within Bosnia itself. Um, you know, effectively you're buying uh, a mineral project, in, you know, almost in the center of Europe, yeah. which is pretty incredible when you think about it. And um, a, a lot of it just comes down, I guess, to the history of Bosnia yeah, I was going to say. Uh, itself. Um, you know, but, you know, it's rapidly modernizing and, um, uh, you know, I think it's got aspirations to become part of the European Union in time. Um, but yeah, um, you know, effectively the jurisdiction itself is, uh, you know, a time capsule when it comes to these extractive industries and um, mm. you know, Adriatic have a true first mover advantage in a very uh, heavily mineralized uh, part of the world, which we think is mm. great. Yeah, because I think in one of your write-ups you talked about Serbia being yeah. a kind of a case study for mm -hmm. when these big mining companies do move in, yeah. how they... Um, they move in force, and in fact, you have mm -hmm. multiple of the multiple blue chip mining companies move in. Infrastructure is developed, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of paves the way for mm -hmm. all of these projects to get to you know cash cash from operations. Very positive yeah. in a very short period of time. So mm -hmm. um, that's a really interesting business. When you think about this in terms of portfolio positioning, a company that is early stage in development. Mm -hmm. I guess the, the, the easiest question to ask is, you know, how much do you allocate to an opportunity like this when you run a diversified portfolio? Well, it really comes down to your um, conviction on the opportunity and your understanding of the risks. So part of our due diligence uh, for uh, Adriatic itself uh, was, um, I, and I guess a key risk that we would um, probably say is the key risk is, uh, the jurisdiction risk. Yep. Uh, Bosnia is still um, it's a new it's still a fairly new legal system. Yep. And um, you know there is it's I guess perceived by the market as a frontier mm. um, jurisdiction. Uh, so to get com comfort around mm. uh, you know the jurisdictional risk, uh, we actually sort of went through the uh, Bosnian 
mining code. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and made sure we understood that. Yeah. But also compared it with uh, the mining code of Serbia that is actually considered to be quite a developed jurisdiction. Right. And um, we didn't actually notice too big a variance between the two. Um, we actually think that um, the Bosnian mining code is actually more favorable <laughs> to companies right. operating there. Um, so, but I guess the big unknown was uh, around um, Bosnia's jurisdiction yep. is, um, I guess, the speed of moving there. Um, Adriatic uh, are trailblazers in this aspect, mm-hmm. um, which might explain their discounts as well. Um, so they're, they're applying for um, an extraction or exploitation permit. And um, uh, that is really you know, effectively you know, the first major um, uh, extractive license to be issued right. within the nation since the war uh, back in the 90s. Okay. So um, we feel that that's uh, you know, an opportunity, but uh, yeah, it also, once that permit is granted, which we think it will be in time, uh, that will effectively be a huge um, uh, de-risking event yep. or catalyst yep. for, for the company itself. Um, Yeah, so I think that, but also I should say the second key risk that we uh, think is material for the company is um, the polymetallic nature of the ore body. Um, Yeah, often in these deposits, it's difficult to um, uh, extract uh, the full value of the metals from the ore body itself. Uh, So basically the way... Uh, uh, the companies or mineral companies in general operate is say for example if you've got a gold mine um, you can uh, you can basically um, you know make gold your gold door <laughs> on yep. site or you can make a concentrate which you sell to a smelter or you know, an end processor uh, for a discount of the contained metal right so um, effectively um, you know, with these polymetallic deposits, um, mm. the metallurgy is very important. And it's really um, uh, a bit of a puzzle, you know, an optimization exercise really in finding, uh, you know, the high, how can we get the ma- obtain the maximum payability, yep. they call it, which is, you know, the minimum discount on the metals being produced. Yeah, right, because you've got so much... So many different minerals coming out of the ground. Yeah, separating them might be challenging. Yes, and so if correct. You, yeah, if you don't do that, then that's someone else's job. In which case, yeah, they aim into your margin. Yeah, right. yeah, correct. So yeah. it's a bit of a puzzle, but um, you know, something that you, you work out um, through these various studies. Yeah, right. It's yeah. interesting because you've you've talked about asymmetric returns, for example, and then we we've gone through some of the risks here with Adriatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people probably think Bosnia mining. Uh, junior, yeah. you hear that all in one sentence, and yeah. you're thinking, okay, that's like a layer of risk yeah. stacking on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, but I guess if you invest in a way when you have a diversified portfolio and you can contain that risk, and then you think about yeah. what's your maximum downside, what's your maximum upside, mm-hmm. I can see how you came to that that position. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of, at least intuitively, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that one thing that really drives our conviction is that. Projects, projects of this quality, or even all bodies of this quality, are extraordinarily rare. You know, right. Most of these 
uh, type of deposits, when they're found, typically get acquired by you know, a mid-tier or a major uh, miner. Um, effectively, Adriatic, as uh, as I mentioned, have a first mover advantage mm. uh, in Bosnia. So, uh, in a new mining jurisdiction where um, you know, effectively you have the best government relations, the best relations with the local communities themselves, mm. I think that's a, a very powerful um, uh, driver for the future returns of Adriatic as well. Mm. Um, you know, comparable projects that we've looked at, you know, in neighbouring countries like Serbia, mm-hmm. uh, have been typically acquired for between seventy to ninety percent of their net present value, right. um, discounted eight percent. So, when you consider that Adriatic's trading at about twenty percent of their PV eight, um, you know potentially could go up four times yep. in, in the case of an acquisition, uh, which is uh, very much an asymmetric return, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's the, that's a good way to quantify it. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, you know, we sort of expect this discount to um, the net present value to compress significantly mm. uh, as they go through these de-risking uh, events, you know, achieving the exploitation or extraction permits and um, going through the different stages of studies, yep. um, yeah, we, we think that value differential will compress significantly. So it's more the, I guess, the, yeah, the de-risking is that every step it takes is obviously it eats into that um, that mm. discount to potential intrinsic mm, value. Absolutely, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. But also, I guess one thematic that um, also is driving uh, this investment is that we are bullish on base metal prices um, over the medium term, um, that's primarily driven by uh, supply side constraints. Okay. Um, for example, the price of zinc is, um, you know, I think it's close to 10-year lows. Right. So over the past 10 years, all these marginal projects, um, or marginal zinc mines, for example, have been shutting down because why would you keep a mine or, or business operating if mm-hmm. you're losing money? You know, and so that's really tightened up the supply from my, our perspective, and um, even more so given the recent events where yeah. metal prices have fallen off, uh, except for gold, of course, and yeah, silver, yeah. probably the precious metals. Um, so we think that you know, um, Adriatic. By the time uh, I think at this point, they're thinking that uh, production will probably start at the at the beginning of twenty twenty two. So we think that um, by that time, base metal prices, um, you know, probably have a high probability of being much higher than they are today. Yeah. So um, the company will really be able to benefit from, you know, that uh, the position is probably the lo- one of the lowest cost producers, um, mm-hmm. you know, given the nature of the deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, so those figures we think will really um, pop, have the potential to pop higher. Yeah, right. It's kind of like that. Um I guess that optionality that it could come, mm. yeah, obviously outside the company's control, but it's something that if it does come, then exactly, yeah, it realizes yeah, yeah that, that that discount I guess closes quicker than yeah, than you'd expect. yeah, yeah correct, sure. yeah, yeah, great. So um, yeah, I think that um, you know, even in, in the case where they don't get acquired, um, you know, they've just acquired uh, a, a whole suite of assets in neighbouring Serbia, so mm. uh, that provides sort of a further. Uh, or the next leg of growth um, yep. post the development of um, this Bosnian project. And um, yeah, so I think that um, should they get this project into production, it will um, 
it, pr- it provides really good potential to grow into the next mid-tier miner. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's sort of um, our hypothesis, yeah, and that'll be very valuable. Mm. Um, I should probably add that the management team own about 25% of the company. So, right, speaking uh, of that alignment. Yeah, yeah, speaking of that alignment. So, yeah, very well incentivized um, through their own stake in the company to extract maximum value, mm. yeah, which we really like, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a really good overview of a company that's probably not on many people's radars because, like, you know, um, they probably don't have the time or the inclination to sit there and go through that um, that process of reading through the mining legislation and seeing what the rules are and mm. how this might shake out over time. So, I think one of the best things I can do from here is is just provide some links in the show notes so people can go back and and, and read more of your research on this. I think you've done a um, a peer, like a, you've done comps, you've done comparables, and, and you can you've taken a look at it there, yeah. and, and responded to some questions. Um, as always, mate, how can people get in contact with you and find out more about Dat Capital? Yeah, sure. Uh, the best place to contact us is via our website, uh, which is dattt.com.au, yep. and uh, you can find more information about us there, and mm-hmm. um, also copies of our write-ups and media. Yeah, great. And I'll put a link to the in the show notes as well as to, to your LinkedIn and your uh, your Twitter page. Um, I know yeah. you're quite active on Twitter. Emmanuel, it's always a pleasure. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Owen. Thanks.